0: Please join Paul and his guests as they ask the ever-important question, Is it Jaws? I came home, there was a man in my house.
1: He had an artificial arm.
2: Are you saying that I killed my wife? Are you saying that I
0: crushed her skull? and that I shot her. All right, ladies and gentlemen, listen up. We have a fugitive that's been on the run for 90 minutes. Average foot speed over uneven ground barring injury is four miles an hour. That will give you a radius of six miles. What I want out of each and every one of you is a hard target search of every gas station, residence, warehouse, farmhouse, henhouse, outhouse, or doghouse in this area. Checkpoints will go up at 15 miles. Your fugitive's name is Dr. Richard Kimball. Go get him.
3: Hello, and welcome to Is It Yours? I almost said the wrong podcast name. Uh, <laughs> I'm Paul Spataro, and today I have wrangled the co-hosts of the movie film po- podcast to join me on my show for a change. Uh, and I'll tell you guys, and I, and I know I've already said this before, but you, since, since I discovered podcasts, I've always looked for a movie podcast where they'd... You know, just talk about the intricacies of different movies and get into things. And I find I found that a lot of the ones I've listened to over the years were a tad pretentious. Uh, and yours is one that does not fit that bill. I, I find that you guys are very down to earth when you talk, but you're also knowledgeable. So your show is one of the ones that I strive to be like.
2: Oh my
1: gosh! Really appreciate that. Thank you. That's amazing.
3: Wow! So say, You know, I'm. I'm Soliciting people to to come up with a theme song as good as yours.
1: <laughs> that I will agree with. I had nothing to do with it, so I I agree. I, I sing it to myself all the time.
3: <laughs> <laughs> I have had the earworm with it once or twice.
1: I know. Yeah, our our buddy Sean Coyle came up with that, so gotta give credit to him.
3: So uh, we were trying to figure out what to cover today, and. You two suggested *The Fugitive* as a movie that you know so well, like the back of your hand, that you'd just mm-hmm. be able to come on cold and talk about it. And I was saying to 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 Zachy before you joined us, Brian, that uh, I know you guys did a commentary on it on your show. Uh, mm-hmm. I, it's been a little while, so I haven't listened to it. I, but I I was one of the things I enjoy about your commentaries is you guys obviously make a conscious effort to not sit there and say oh yeah and look at this this is a great scene and look at this Mm -hmm. (laughs) oh this is when he does this you talk about the movie so that if somebody's if i'm in my car and i don't have a visualization of a movie i'm comfortable listening to your commentary Uh, most of the time i do have a visualization in my mind because most of the movies you cover are ones that i've seen multiple times right but but that is the right way to do a commentary as far as I'm concerned. And I know on the occasions where I've done them, there has been once or twice where I've gotten into the movie and, like, stopped talking. Yeah,
1: I, you know, that's a joke with us because whenever a movie is over two hours, <laughs> before we start rolling, we're always like, uh-oh. And I, I found the only one I remember actually running out of things liter- – I mean, it's almost never a problem. But the only time I remember actually running out of things to say, I think, was Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves. I, was that it? I, I think cause uh, God, it was like Godzilla.
2: Ca- Godzilla no, Godzilla.
1: Man. Godzilla. It was like there was like 20 minutes left, and I was like, I, yeah, that's it. <laughs> yeah.
2: We, Just, you, you can
1: turn off
3: your, your blue ray now. Yeah. Well, we, no. we, yeah.
2: We committed to that one, not, you know, realizing it didn't occur to us that this thing could be giant sized. Yes. And, and then, <laughs> we're like, oh, it's two hours plus. Uh, we should have reconsidered this, you know, and, and it was yeah. kind of in for a penny, in for a pound.
1: But then again, yeah. if it's a movie like The Fugitive, which is over two hours long, and this is this is one of those weird movies. I, don't, I say weird because it's it's not a movie that I think people quote a whole lot. But Zachy and I quote it as if it was a Simpsons yes. episode, which and <laughs> even just just today, in fact. I got yeah. a voicemail from an unknown caller and I was trying to <laughs> decipher it because it was real garble, garbly and it, it, someone was in a car trying to talk. And I was like, what? <laughs> was trying to piece out together the words. I don't and I literally just it was like, next stop, merchandise <laughs> mark. <laughs> <laughs> Which comes from this film, but I know very few people would know what I was talking about. <laughs> well,
2: and literally just yesterday, Brian, just yesterday, yeah. when, we reco- when we recorded our show, um i'm on skype brian calls me and as soon as i pick up on skype i go what
1: yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and i knew and- exactly that he was just the word yelling what at me and i knew exactly without any setup or context that he was quoting one of the prisoners from the beginning <laughs> that first act of this movie when they're doing go call on the bus <laughs> that's great so here uh, we are, Fugitive.
3: Yeah. <laughs> so, yep. Yeah, so what I was saying to Zachy was, uh, I wanted to come up with like a different angle to attack this from because I don't want it mm. to just be okay. Let's just talk about the movie. Right. So, in my mind, this movie should not be. And, and I'm gonna just, I'm gonna just blow the lead. I'm gonna, I think this is a great movie. I, I think mm. it's, it's. I'm gonna rank it as Jaws before we even start talking about it. Mm. But when I think about it, this movie shouldn't work. Mm-hmm. They had no working script when they were when they were filming <laughs> it. They changed the casting numerous times. And think about it. How many serious TV shows can you think of that they made a, a major motion picture out of that was successful? Absolutely.
1: And I was just – this is so funny. I can't believe how much this movie has come up. Honestly, not even related to having this podcast coming up. This week, but I was uh, oh uh, my girlfriend and I were watching Psych, and the police chief on that show was an actress in The Fugitive, but I can't remember (laughs) who she played. So every now and then I attempt to try to figure out who she was, and so I went on YouTube, found some random clip, and it was the wrong clip, but it was the clip with Julianne Moore where she plays this doctor, and what happens is is, as you know Harrison Ford's character is sneaking around the hospital. He sees this boy who's in pain and he can't help his tendency to want to help. And so he looks at the boy's chart, ends up sort of saving his life. And it's this total little moment in the film, which is true to his character. And it also, you know, makes a new lead for the the people chasing him. It is conducive to the story. However, it is true to the nature of the television show. Like they didn't leave behind the fact that the show was based about him going from town to town while he was trying to hide, he can't help but help people. And it just, Mm -hmm. I mean, I already knew this, but it was just, it really highlighted again, what a brilliant, subtle way to weave that trait and that trope of that show into a feature film and not make it, uh, you know, him helping this guy and him helping that guy. And it just sort of organically, they wove it into the story, but it's true to the show.
3: Yeah. And the successful... Movies that I can come up with that were from TV shows, uh, or at least again not sitcoms. I, I don't. I don't even want to discuss the ab- <laughs> just a horrible list of sitcoms that were made into movies. But uh, most of the shows that I can think of that were not sitcoms that were successful were continuations of what went mm-hmm. on before, like Star Trek, or you know uh, I'm trying to think of. What are the ones Firefly. Uh, you know mm-hmm. they, they they did continuations of it they didn't uh, you know reboot it from the start and to take an entire series that mm. went on over all that time and to compress it into two hours and to still have like you were just saying the, the spirit of the show right it's, it's I mean it's a, it's an incredible accomplishment
1: yeah yeah it's uh, and I always forget about that fact but that it was so production was really cobbled together it's just amazing that they came out with such a taut thriller you know working the way that they did and it wasn't even nominated for best picture
3: yeah it was, yes, it was.
1: yeah so i mean it's just yeah i mean how nominated often does for best picture
3: happen? and one best supporting actor
1: right right
3: with Tommy with L. a Jones. performance that was kind of a bit of a scenery chewing performance. Mm-hmm. And I usually feel like those aren't the ones that should win, that the, the performance should be more subtle, but he kind of chewed the scenery and was subtle at the same time, Yeah, <laughs> which I, obviously it's a little bit of a, an oxymoron, but you know, there's things he did as far as body movement and just the looks he would give and things like that, that were subtle while he was just, uh, you know, a uh, Clearly, a, a very much a type A personality in the way he was presented. Mm-hmm. And again, you know, for anybody who doesn't know, that's Tommy Lee Jones I'm talking about, uh, who who is an interesting actor. And I, I think I just want to land on him for a minute because I had been vaguely familiar with him, uh, you know, in the in the early '80s, late '70s, from things like Executioner's Song or The Betsy, and I'm trying to think of what else uh, he had been in. Uh, but I, 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 for whatever reason, I decided I didn't like him. Hmm. And then I saw Lonesome Dove, mm. which oh, I think so is—I think it's one of the greatest. I, I think it is the greatest miniseries ever. Mm. Uh, not even one of the. And his performance in that, and Robert Duval's performance in that, was so incredible that it turned me around 180 degrees, and I became a Tommy Lee Jones fan.
1: Hmm. Yeah, I. This was I was 13 when the Fugitive came out. So this was the first time I had ever seen him. So ever since as good as he is and the other things he does. I mean this is my base for Tommy Lee Jones, right? I feel like I see him do variations. Uh, and I actually I don't mean to say that he repeats himself, but he he is this character to me.
3: Well, um, in in many ways like when he was in uh, Captain America First Avenger, I almost feel like he was playing Sam Girard. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Right he,
2: well he has he has an established persona i I will agree with with Brian to the extent that uh the fugitive for me is the first time I was able to connect uh name and actor um, however I had seen him in other things uh like in the eighties there was a there was a, a movie with i want to say it was with Matthew Modine called uh Nate and Hayes hmm. and he played kind of a kind of a uh, you know uh, like a like a pirate type you know a swashbuckling hmm. type which is very you know that doesn't seem like something in his wheelhouse and then i saw him in another movie with nicholas cage called uh, Firebirds. Hmm. and so like it, but you know i mean i was a kid so i never made that connection but the, the notion of sort of the, the 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 you know the modern package that is tommy lee jones yeah like brian says for me it's You know, The Fugitive is Ground Zero. Everything else is the basement. You know, that's all like uh, the the foundational stuff. But The Fugitive, to me, every every role he has played since is either an evocation of that or some kind of a contrast.
1: Yeah, and it's it's you know going back to him winning, you know, the Oscar for this role. I think, and and scenery chewing. I think a lot of times when people get their Oscar, or at least the best supporting Oscar. It is because there's one scene that's given to them where they just get to really go at it, whether they're like, you know, beating their fists onto a casket and they get to yell like these perfect four lines or something like that. And everyone remembers it. But what's so incredible about this character in this script is, I mean, this isn't just a guy who wants to catch Dr. Richard Kimball. Like he, that is his mission. That is his job. That is his number one goal. But as the movie goes on, he is also open minded to what is being presented to him. And by the end of the movie, he realizes, you know, that that Kimball is innocent. And it's it's kind of fascinating. He goes from like a Terminator, you know, that I don't care in yeah. the tunnel, to he's smart. He's accepting the information that is being discovered. And he, you know, like he he. His his character morphs and evolves through the movie as the story goes along. Like he's sharper than just being this growly guy until the end who you know what I mean? Like it's yeah, it's a oh, really absolutely. rich character. Well,
3: I, I think at the point when he you know, when when Dr. Kimball breaks into the hospital and is looking at the records of the people with the yes. prosthetic arms and then they come to the hospital afterwards, I think that's when he has the absolute conviction in his mind that Kimball didn't kill his wife,
1: mm-hmm. and he becomes skeptical as he talks to to some of the other people, and it's it's fun seeing him still be his sort of smarmy self, but he's he's putting the pieces together, and you can see that calculation behind his eyes.
2: It's it's a great it's a uh, if I can just interject here, I mean the, the, to, to echo to echo what you're saying, uh, you know how you convey so much in those silences, and when he's talking to Julianne Moore in the mm-hmm. scene that Brian referred to. And, and, you know, Gerard's like, how's the boy doing? And she says he saved his life. And we just cut to his face as he takes that information in. And I love that, that, you know, Tommy Lee Jones is able to convey Mm -hmm. both uh, a hard edge and kindness
4: Mm.
2: within the same scene. And he does that earlier when he tells his, his deputy, you know, Newman, he says, I don't bargain. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Oh, I love that scene. It's so great because, because that's all in the context of him showing the kindness and the, and the really the maternal energy of protecting his kids. He calls them his kids, right? Mm -hmm. His deputies. But within that, that's woven around, but I'm going to get this guy no matter what. In that case, it was referring to, to, uh, you know, Copeland, but, that's, that's the paradox, right? And so this entire performance is elevated by Tommy Lee Jones very delicately walking this this tightrope between a uh, 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 sort of generic hard-ass and somebody who's a little bit more complicated than that.
4: Mm-hmm.
3: But, now, you know, I think – I don't know how familiar you guys are with the TV show. Uh, but, you know, in the TV I, show – so I
2: I think more more so than Brian, I think yes. I yeah. In,
3: in the TV show, I think, you know, S- Sam Gerard was almost, uh, I forget what the character's name is, but it was almost Les Miserables, where mm-hmm. he's obsessed yes. with getting he's Richard I'm sorry? He's, he's Philip
2: Gerard. Oh, was show.
3: he? Okay. I didn't see. It's been a while since I watched it. Uh, I I think in this one, he's not. Even though this does catch the tone of the, the TV show, in the movie... At least, you know, what the whole I don't care scene is yeah. showing you he's not obsessed with Richard Kimball. Mm. And it's not, you know, it's not Jean Valjean on the run here. Uh, this this is somebody who his duty is to bring him in. And he's mm-hmm. obsessed with performing his duty. But that's as far as it goes. And he's very content to bring him in to have him, you know, have the, uh, the conviction overturned. Mm hmm. I don't think, you know, like there's no point where his ego enters into this and he's bothered by the fact that, you know, he finds out that Kimball is innocent. Right. And and I think, you know, that's, that's almost reflected when, you know, when they get into the car, you know, he's giving him the, <laughs> the, the thing for, to warm his hands. He's taking the handcuffs yep. off of him and he's smiling at him. You know, he he's, you know, he, he's very comfortable with the fact that Kimball isn't guilty. Yep. So, uh, If you're still listening to us, we uh, we're a week later and uh, we were recording and something happened that we had to stop and we had to go away and we came back. So we're going to pick up the conversation. And as much as I wanted to try and seamlessly edit it together, I thought it was better to not pretend and just let you guys know. Uh, Some time has passed since everything else you've listened to, but I've managed to wrangle uh, Zachy and Brian back to keep talking to me. I don't know why they keep coming back, but they do.
1: Well, I think we're, we're all a little, we'll sound a little wiser now. <laughs> That's um, we are older. By about seven days. <laughs> I, I was
2: just thinking it'd be funny if we are, in fact, recording exactly where we left off, but we're just telling people it's a week later for an elaborate <laughs> prank in our own heads. Well, and you know Andy what? Kaufman. They have no <laughs> yeah, way exactly. of
1: knowing, Right. <laughs> right. <laughs>
2: We we're like ha ha, ha. fooled them. It
3: <laughs> that was uh what's it, Dana Carvey had a uh had a T V show for a little yeah, while, yep. I think in the nineties. And that was pranksters? One, yeah, one of the bits they did like pranks that just really yeah, were just like you know totally it, stupid. It, it, it
2: was him and Steve Carell.
3: Yeah. Like they, they, they would, went over, they, would... they went and bought stuff at the drive-thru, they gave the guy more money, and then they didn't wait for the change and they laughed at the guy?
2: Yeah. They would take okay. off before they got their, their
3: food. Yes. <laughs> as, if they, as if they put one over on him. But uh, anyway, we, we, we are back again. And we've kind of gone extensively into Tommy Lee Jones. Uh, hmm. I wanted to touch a little on Harrison Ford. Because as I sit here now, it strikes me as a no-brainer. Of course, Harrison Ford, you know, who who could you possibly want more than Harrison Ford to play the lead in this movie? Uh-huh. Uh, according to Wikipedia, they had considered Alec Baldwin, Nick Nolte, Kevin Costner, and Michael Douglas. Oh, yeah. uh, and when you, you hear that list, and those are all, you know, good actors, yep. and they'd probably all be good in the role, but you think, well, none of them were going to do better than what Harrison Ford did, mm-hmm. you know, with hindsight. But when I... Think about Harrison Ford at the time this was made, so, you know, 1993. uh, I I almost feel like you could eliminate Star Wars and Indiana Jones from the equation because they're so different than the character he's playing here. And when I think of him in roles of a similar nature that he had been in to this point, or characters of a similar nature, not necessarily roles. Uh, well, one is very similar, and that would be John Book and Witness. And, mm-hmm. you know, you see that and you think, okay, yeah, that's great. You know, yeah. he was great in that, and it would fit in this just as well. But two other movies that come to mind for me, of him as kind of a more regular guy, that didn't work for me were Mosquito Coast and uh, Frantic. Mm. And even to some extent, presumed innocent.
4: Mm-hmm.
3: And so I'm, I'm thinking, I don't know that it's the slam dunk no-brainer at that point, if I'm the casting guy, mm. that I think of now, you know, with 27 years hindsight. I'm curious as to what you guys think about that. Uh,
2: I, I would say that, I mean, uh, I, I think the films you point to, certainly Mosquito Coast is, uh, you know, was was... You know, that that's not generally thought of as one of... Now it's thought of as one of a, a you know, off-the-beaten-path performances. But, I mean, what he was known for, uh, certainly in the early 90s, was being sort of the everyman action hero, right? So, as you said, if you set... Even if you set Indiana Jones to one side, you still get, for me, uh, Jack Ryan. I mean, he was in Patriot mm-hmm. Games just the year before. And I think that Richard Kimball is very much of a piece... Uh, the characterization, at least, is very much of a piece with Jack Ryan, where he's a very capable person who who is still a "quote unquote" average guy who's thrust into an action situation. So, for me, uh, to to whatever extent we can consider it a slam dunk, I, I look at I look at uh, Patriot Games as an example
1: of of why it, it would have, if you're a casting director, why it would have worked. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I. Had, I kind of forgotten about like i i remember that those movies exist but i forget where they exist in time um and it's funny because then i know this is afterward but i think of uh, air force one and it's it's almost the same description where you have a a smart savvy person but he's still kind of an everyman but he rises to the occasion to become the action hero he needs to be
3: yeah, you know and, like that was just, just kinda... happens to be the president of the united States. <laughs> well you know what i'm saying president. like
1: against you know with machine guns on a hijack plane and whatnot but it, it, he's he's a, he's an interesting guy i mean he does that sort of he's handsome and he's you know whatever but he's also does bluster really well
3: yeah well you and know? he's not handsome in a let's take some glamour shots way he's handsome sure, sure. in an every man you know you figure you know if you're hanging out in a bar you you worry that your girlfriend's going to want to go over and hang out with him instead of you <laughs> right 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 <laughs>
1: But uh, yeah, that's a that's a good point. But yeah, he definitely brings some sort of rugged, scruffy, lovable charm to it that I don't see Michael Douglas or Nick Nolte or any of those guys bringing. But I know I I can't separate the fact that I'm endeared to the guy naturally because of my age with Indiana Jones and Han Solo. Um, So, I mean, this movie came out when I was 13. And it's funny because you would think this is a movie that would just appeal possibly to an older audience who's maybe familiar with the show or a fan of Harrison Ford's, like you say, like the frantic and uh, presumed innocent sort of offerings. But I, I remember being like day one, like, I want to go see this movie, you know, mm-hmm. It, you know, and it's, it's hard to imagine a movie like this even coming out now, I suppose, but would teens be lining up for a movie like this? Huh. You know, it's uh, just yeah. probably just kinda,
3: not only because of yeah. the, you know, the way the movie genres have gone since then, you know, the action blockbuster in the movie theater has become so prevalent mm-hmm. uh, as opposed to the... I hate to call this a smaller film because it's, you know, there's all sorts of action going on in this one, but when you compare this to, say, Endgame or, or you know, any, any one of the superhero movies we've gotten in the last 10 years, it's, it's a very different animal. Mm-hmm. And I think that the you know for, for going to the movies purposes those are the ones that are attracting the people uh, I think the smaller movies are more attractive to people for watching at home now and again mm-hmm. I hate to call this a smaller movie but I think from a teenage perspective this is a smaller movie
1: yeah no doubt yeah and and funnily enough I mean when I was 13 and this came out on VHS this was the first movie I spent my own money to buy like the VHS of <laughs> <laughs> it just just said. I mean, it says a lot about me.
3: <laughs> well, it's, it also... says something about your ability to uh, watch a movie because even even though you know there's a lot of things about this that are just you know appealing on an action level, and and you know I, I don't want to get too repetitive, but there's a lot of more subtle things in this. So I think it does say something for your ability at 13 years old to distinguish between just action or mm. action that's got layers to it. Yeah, well,
1: I'll take that. (laughs) (laughs) But, uh, but, you know, and also I thought it was interesting, speaking of bigger movies, and we think now, you know, the big movies that appeal to everyone are tend to be these really expensive movies that have sort of fantastical bents to them, whether it's the action or the the worlds they take place on. But uh, I was looking at the top 1993 box office. Number one, of course, Jurassic Park. But number two is The Fugitive. Which is crazy. And then just for context, three, four, and five are The Firm, which is another sort of adult, you know, lo-fi. I would say, I you would say in, that. in
3: genre that's similar to The Fugitive.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. And then Sleepless in Seattle was number four, and then Mrs. Doubtfire was number five.
3: If it and means just, anything, I went to see every one of those in the movie theater.
1: Yeah, I think I may have to. except Sleepless in Seattle. I probably saw that on VHS later, but um, Yeah. Yeah, it's just it's just interesting. I mean, the types of movies that were the juggernauts those years. But also why I even looked that up in the first place was I was thinking it's interesting that The Fugitive was the number two movie in 1993 behind Jurassic Park. And it's funny that there's this huge weight behind Jurassic Park still. I mean, ironically or not ironically, but as a weird footnote in this moment in history, it was number one at the box office last weekend. You know, with uh, only drive-ins <laughs> being open, so it's and you you see Jurassic Park T-shirts everywhere, and of course they've rebooted the franchise, but I feel like people are still talking about the original '93 Spielberg film. But it's just funny that the number two movie, The Fugitive. I mean, the whole "I don't care," you know, line was riffed on and the Simpsons and whatnot, but somehow that slowly faded away from you know prevalent public consciousness, which is just. I don't know. I, I'm just curious for you guys to speak to that a little bit.
3: Yeah, I, I you know, we, we were talking before we started recording again, and I was saying how, uh, you know, there, there's been this, this situation where there's some movies that just seem to be evergreen and are on TV all the time. And actually, the one I always mention and I mentioned earlier was Shawshank Redemption, although mm-hmm. I don't see that on TV nearly as much now as I did, say, five years ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that's because right now I'm seeing a lot of the superhero movies on TV mm-hmm. on an evergreen basis or Harry Potter on as an evergreen basis. But to me, I would think Shawshank Redemption – would appeal to the exact same audience Mm. as The Fugitive would. And I never could understand, if if you ask me personally, I think The Fugitive is a somewhat superior movie, although I think Shawshank is terrific also. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I could never understand why Shawshank got the love it did and Fugitive seemed to kind of, this is overstating it, but it seemed to almost fade into obscurity a little bit. Mm -hmm. Yeah,
1: I don't. I don't know. I mean, it's interesting, too, that Shawshank wasn't a box office hit, right? Whereas The Fugitive was. It's Shawshank somehow found its beloved following years later, I guess, maybe. I don't know if it was VHS or if it wasn't the Well, like, Shawshank cable had,
2: had a famously impenetrable title, which basically dared people <laughs> to pay money to watch it. know. <laughs>
3: Well, it's yeah. even worse if you consider the uh, you know the, what it was adapted from because the original title is Rita, Rita Hayworth Wirth and the Shawshank Redemption. <laughs> right, right.
2: I I think to that point when you look at the fugitive, the marketing was spot on because and you guys know a murdered wife, uh, uh, you know uh, an innocent man, you know mm-hmm. the chase begins or whatever. Like it's so it's so basic. What mm-hmm. what, what? Let's go see this movie. What is it? The fugitive. Oh gee, I wonder what that's about. Right? You don't need to, you know. Oh, that's who's in it. Harrison Ford. Let's go. It's 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 like a perfect package. It's though it's those deals that that agents put together. You know what I mean?
1: Mm. <laughs> right, right, right.
2: And it helps that you know back then the television series was still somewhat known. Uh. Um. I remember when the movie came out and my parents being like, oh, is that the, we used to watch the TV show? Oh, you know, And they didn't go to the theater. But when it came to home video, they watched it because they remembered the TV show. Hmm. You know, and this was during that era where, you know, we talked about it before. I mean, everything, every old time TV show was getting rebooted. But there's a reason this one worked in a way those other ones
1: didn't. Right? Well, so why it, do you think it didn't find its... Uh you know all the slots on cable for reruns then
2: i mean it it had a run right i mean i would say for a good seven to nine years it was it was rerun fairly often but i just mm-hmm. i just think the marketplace has changed you know i right. i can't speak to cable because i just i don't i don't uh, i don't have cable, so i don't you know i don't know what what movies are rerun constantly but i mean i can speak to the the young people uh <laughs> You know, because I've been teaching media classes for more than 10 years, and I screen The Fugitive every year, every semester. And,
3: and Well, the first, first question to you on that is when you screen that for your class, yeah. what percentage yeah. of it – and this would be a, a class of students who have at least some level of appreciation for film. What percentage of your class has not seen it already?
2: I mean, it's been – it's been a sliding scale. So when mm-hmm. I first started, I would say, you know, 40 to 60 percent of them had either seen or heard of it.
4: Mm-hmm.
2: And we're at a point now where if if anybody's seen it, you're talking about maybe two or three out of a class of 35.
3: Mm-hmm. That that right. almost seems like a sin. <laughs> <You know? laughs> And, and you my, know what? I'm I'm guilty because I don't think I've ever gotten my kids to sit down and watch this, and I should.
4: Right. <laughs> well, this it's just seems, so much. <laughs> this seems
3: like one of those movies where if if it's been over a year since you saw it, and it comes up in a conversation, you should be saying to yourself, "You know what? I got to put that on again soon."
4: Mm-hmm.
3: And and it seems like that should be universal. <laughs> so so I don't understand the lack of audience that it seems to have right now. And it's you know I mean to. For, for, You'd only have two or three people in your class. How, how large is your class generally?
2: Yeah, we're talking about between thirty-five and forty.
3: And and to have you know, I guess you're talking kids somewhere between eighteen and twenty-two years old.
2: That's that's a good range, yeah.
3: And and for them to not have any familiarity with this, or if you know, only two or three of them to have familiarity with this, it just seems just wrong <laughs> to me that that yeah. you know that this this should have more exposure. This this should be an evergreen movie. Well, how how does it
1: play for for an, an uninitiated audience?
2: That's that's the fun part for me. Is this is because I, I I close off my semester with this right? Mm. Um, because I the, the class that I screened in is called cultural expression in media, and basically, I the class is structured around the idea of how film interprets different cultural groups and how we then plug into those cultural groups based on filmic interpretation. Mm -hmm. And so I use the fugitive as, as a culminative experience where I talk about film itself is a culture. And Mm -hmm. when we all sit in a crowd and watch a kind of a a blockbuster type movie together, we are, we are sharing in our own monoculture, you know? Mm -hmm. And I think this is a perfect vehicle for that. And, it's it's a slam dunk movie. Like I know they're gonna love it.
4: Mm-hmm. You
2: know what I mean? And and that's never not been the case.
3: I, I remember when I when Twice I was in college, a year, I, uh, more than ten years. I took a uh, film appreciation course when I was in college, and the teacher that taught it showed the scene from Goldfinger in Fort Knox. Mm-hmm. Oh sure. And and he challenged the audience, and he's showing he was showing it to us for the purpose of showing the editing and the uh, music in the in that scene. And he challenged the class to watch it for that purpose and not get pulled into the story. Hmm. And it was amazing because sure. everybody got pulled into the story. <laughs> Nobody right. was able to to watch the entire scene with and and continue to take notes on editing because it was just so. You know, it just pulled you in so much, and and I wonder if you might have some sort of a communal experience with your class that, of that nature with this movie, where you're showing it to them for an express purpose and they just get pulled into the story and kind of forget all the stuff that you're talking about.
1: <laughs> right. Well, on a similar note, Zachy, I'm curious with your kids, and I don't I don't know if they're old enough for this movie yet, but have you shown it to them? And if so, I'm just curious. I imagine your oldest is probably about the age when I saw this. I'm just curious if it hooks him well, at yeah, all. Yeah, he,
4: he's
2: he's 13. So um, at, at this point, at this point, my two oldest have seen it at least twice. Mm-hmm. So I mean, this is just part of their cinematic language, you know.
1: Mm-hmm. That's cool. Uh, yeah, I think. Yeah, yeah he are good. No, that's it. Well, no, it's it's funny because. Uh, You think there's just so many touchstone movies, at least for our generation, that we feel like, okay, these are the things we have to show our children to build like a foundation. And there can Mm -hmm. there's so many building blocks that are sort of a requirement, you know, like the Back to the Futures, the Star Wars, the whatever that I can see where this one could get sort of forgotten. But this is yeah, just this feels like that little lost gem that should sort of spark in your head at night and you go, oh, oh, yeah, they're going to love this one. And, you know.
3: Yeah, that's and and I'm and I'm sitting here and I'm feeling all sorts of guilty that I haven't done that with my kids. <laughs> I remember I remember like with my son, uh, waiting for him to hit the appropriate age, that I could get him to sit and watch Die Hard with me. Mm-hmm. Like you know, like I wanted to watch it with him, and it's like no, he's just too young. I got to wait a couple more years. <laughs> and, <laughs> and then finally we got to sit down and watch it, and he loved it. And this should have been the same type of experience. In fact, this he could have watched two or three years earlier than he watched Die sure. Hard.
1: Sure. Sure. You know, you know, is another thing about this movie, and I know Zachy and I especially can speak to this, was that it was a Chicago movie. Yeah. Right. I mean, now I've lived in Los Angeles for almost uh, well, almost twenty years, coming on that, and and so I still, I mean, every almost everything you know you see on TV and whatnot is shot in Los Angeles or parts of it are, and I still get giddy when I recognize something. So times that by ten when you're young and you're interested in movies. And a movie takes place in your city, and, and not one that has palm trees and you know places you don't recognize. Like you, you recognize the bridges, you recognize the L train, and all those things. And I, I know that definitely spoke to me I, as a as a kid. All you know, being in and the that, suburbs of Chicago.
3: That's that's a similar experience. I think that uh, anybody who's who's in that situation, you know, growing up in Brooklyn, uh, and. Being in Manhattan, Staten Island, the Verrazano Bridge, you know, all, all those different things that we see in movies. Uh, I do remember, especially as a kid, more, much more so than as an adult, when you saw something that you've seen in real life. Oh, I I, you know, I know where they filmed that. I saw mm-hmm. this. It, it would it would carry a lot of weight for it. Yep. So I could yep. see. Now, this, this, I mean, they didn't film the entire movie in Chicago, uh, but hmm. it feels like they did. I think they did a good job as somebody who didn't grow up in Chicago has only been there twice in my life. It felt like when I was in Chicago.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well, I know the the train sequence, which we should talk about that, by the way, that this is incredible pre CGI practical train crash that they actually, you know, executed. And apparently I think that was in North Carolina, I want to say. And the train is still like, they just left it. They p- packed up their cameras and left. And you can still go out there and see the train.
3: Um, They're just kind of humming and backing away slowly. <laughs> yeah, wheels still slowly turning.
1: Um, but that, that sequence, I mean, I think for those very reasons, still hold up because it feels so visceral and dangerous <laughs> you know, when you're watching it.
3: And that there's something to be said for practical effects uh, and, and how they feel, It's especially if you are fully aware of it. I mean, there's certain... Digital effects that are so seamless that, mm-hmm. you know, you, you could believe they're absolutely real. Uh, but the more far out you get, the more, even if they look real, you start saying, oh, all right, you know, this is still fantasy world. Mm-hmm. Uh, but when it's, when it's truly a practical effect and they, and they just do it right, like in that scene, uh, it, there, there is, like you said, a visceral feeling to it. Mm-hmm. And, and that, that just, it get, it kind of gets you gri- gripping the arms of your chair.
1: Yeah, and, and I little mean little even as a kid, yeah, I rewatched that. It wasn't. I mean, obviously, I rewatched Star Wars and all those things too. But that Fugitive, the train sequence was definitely something that I would pop in the VCR and rewind and watch over and over. I mean, it really captivated me for sure.
3: And if the funny thing is, when you first said the train sequence, my, in my mind, I went to the scene at the end of the movie when the guy recognizes him on the train. Mm, right. I'm thinking, I'm thinking you know, because it's it is a very well put together scene. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I'm thinking, hey, where's Brian going with this? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. And then you get Neil Flynn, right, as the uh, yes, the cop, the, the transit
3: cop. Yes. Yeah. Uh, so I, let, I I just want to talk a little bit more about some of the casting choices a little bit. Uh, I I think Celia Ward was perfect for her very small role in this. Because it's almost like you see her and you say, you know, I understand why he loved her so much because I just see her in this and I love her too. <laughs> right. Right. And I didn't yeah. really know her. I wasn't familiar. I knew she was on that show Sisters, but I didn't mm-hmm. really know her to speak of.
1: Yeah.
3: But she just, you know, like for, for somebody who's on the screen so little and, you know, you really hardly see her with Harrison Ford at all. You just feel some sort of chemistry there anyway.
4: Mm-hmm. Mm
3: -hmm. which is very strange, but it's, it's true. And it's just, you know, she was perfect for that small part.
2: So just to that point, I mean, the fact that she has such a small role relative to screen time means that the time that we spend with her is that much more important. Right. And I think, I think two things that are so crucial is we see them sort of kidding around with each other Mm -hmm. at the, at the party, you know, there there's an overt there there's an affection, um, but there's also there's also a passion. You know, we see them, uh, uh you know, making love, right? There, there, he he didn't he wasn't just married to her; he was in love with her.
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah, you, you see her like preparing for him to come home, spreading the rose right. petals right. and everything, and you just kind of yeah. feel her. You know, you don't know how long they're married, but you just assume it's been a while but yeah. you see that she's still kind of excited about him coming home he comes that's in right. he sees the role before he realizes what happened he's you know he he's smiling cuz he knows that she's got that attitude uh you know that you you feel it it's it's just for a very short scene it's very strong mm-hmm. it's, it's yeah. in in its own way it's it's like the uh the opening scene in up where he pulled out so much emotion in you <laughs> right yeah right. yeah, really yeah
1: cool. that's a good yeah
3: uh, one of the, the the casting things that surprised me and it shouldn't have uh, because in my mind I saw him as a bigger actor than he was only because he he was a character or is a character actor uh, was Joe, Joe Panson uh, as the deputy marshal because mm-hmm. I just saw him as you know I, I, thought, I think of him from uh, midnight run mm. or from risky business and I just kind of saw him as a more as a, as a bigger role. And yet, you know, he's fine in in this and he fits it very, very well. And, he, you know, is part of uh, Lieutenant Gerard's uh, crew.
1: It's interesting because I would be curious to see the alternate universe version of this where someone else plays him because it might feel like a smaller role. But he just makes such a meal out of it and just adds his Joey Pantsness to it all. <laughs> that is exactly is, I mean, he feels like the third lead in the movie, basically. Right. You know, like him and Tommy Lee have like i mean the whole team they do a really good job even the small whoever speaks the least and i'm not sure who that is they still make it feel like they all have this chemistry like they are this family under this father figure of tommy lee jones's sam gerard right like so but but certainly i'd say that the uh, cosmo character maybe choose the most scenery is a way to put it but uh, it's very memorable for that reason
3: well you, you you get the feeling through the whole movie that People who come into his unit either become part of the family and totally buy into his mm-hmm. way of doing things, or they get transferred out. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And that's you know that that that's what I think adds more weight to the I don't ma- I don't bargain.
1: Oh, such a good scene, yeah. And then that's like it's almost kind of a moment for that that guy too, where it's like you in or you out. Like is this you know this is how we operate? And then I love at the end of that, then he puts like a blanket around him.
3: Yeah, because he does yeah. care about his guys, but they will have to buy into his well, way of doing and, things. And
2: what makes it, that scene in, in the beginning with Newman so great is it allows for Deputy Newman to have his little arc where at the end of the movie, near the end, he's the one who helps crack the case. And, mm-hmm. you know, he's talking to Sam and Sam's like, I want you to do this and do that. And don't let him really give you any shit about your ponytail either. Mm-hmm. He's yeah, part of right. the team now. He, said, yep. and he says, "He says good. He says good work, young man." And he and they show him, and he's like, "Thank you, sir." You know, like that sense yep. of like, this guy, he's a tough boss. It, yeah, it's like he I, I'm came to come age. out a better person on the Yeah, exactly.
1: Yeah, I mean, talk about good screenwriting, and I and I mean, I know we have already addressed that this movie was like held together by gum and. You know, twist twist ties and whatnot. But I mean, to it's like he could have just been Agent Number Three, you yeah, know. But exactly. to take the real estate of its running time to give the like third or fourth person in his unit an arc like that, just that's what makes a great film. When you find the way to do that, it, it, to even attempt it is one thing, but to pull it off is like that's why there aren't so many classics. There, it's why there, aren't, you know, it's it's not easy.
3: When, when you hear about this screenwriting and you know what the, the screenplay was like and how they, you know, kind of doing it on the fly, you wonder how much of it is totally, you know, just off the cuff, like impromptu. Let me—I'm going to just say this line this way, or I'm going to—I'm mm-hmm. going to change mm. the line. And I—I know—I only know from you guys talking about it that the scene when they're interrogating Harrison Ford mm. was totally impromptu with no script, right? Yeah, which which amazes me. <laughs> you you find that man you find Mm -hmm. him it's just so good his his outrage that they're that they're thinking he committed this murder
4: Mm -hmm. it's it's you know it
3: feels so real
2: the slow realization is what's so perfect because going into that room it doesn't even occur to him that he's going to end up on the wrong side of this and Mm -hmm. throughout the through this you know the camera is on him and you know you see that realization gradually happen in real time, and that's what makes it so effective. And it really underscores this idea of this man who is, uh, you know, a, a victim of this unjust system. We we are seeing the injustice play out right through the magic lens of film. You know, when when the trial is happening, and they say the prosecutor's like, "We're going to play Helen Kimball's nine one one call so that you can hear her." Uh, blame you know name her killer but through the magic of the film we see we see what actually happened mm. So as the jury's hearing it we all, you want to shout out like no 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 that's not what happened no 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 you, mm. you got it wrong you know uh, and, and why, why is that because it puts you firmly on his side. by the time that train crashes there's to be no doubt in you the mm. audience's of mind that this man is righteous and he's the victim of an unjust
3: system. Right. And just to kind of underline that scene so uh, a little bit more, because I think it's so well done, Uh, like you you can feel his confusion Mm -hmm. that they don't believe when he realizes they don't believe him. Yeah. And then he, he's kind of going over it slowly, like, how could you not understand what I'm saying? When I got home, there was a man. He had one arm. You know, like he started saying right. it slowly, like, like, listen to me carefully because you're not up? listening to me. <laughs> it's, it's so, so perfect. Yep. Uh, so one of the interesting things, as I, as I was watching this, and I had never noticed it when I just watched the movie for fun. But watching it for the sake of our, our conversation, you know, I'm trying to be a little bit more critical and I'm looking at things more closely. And uh, I don't know how to pronounce it right. Jerone Crabbe, who played Dr. Nichols. Jeroen
2: y- y- Crabbe.
3: Jeroen Crabbe. I'm never going to say it right again. So I said it right once. So we'll go with that. <laughs> uh, we'll,
2: like, we'll check the box.
3: You got it. <laughs> <laughs> I was watching it again with a critical eye and I'm thinking, oh, this this is bad, you know, because they're fighting and, and he looks like a like – a, you know, like he doesn't know what he's doing. And then I'm thinking about it. I was like, no, but he's a doctor. He's not a fighter. He's not supposed right. to know what he's doing. Right. So he's, he's actually doing it right because if he fought too well, then you'd say, you know, where, where did this guy learn how to fight like this? Mm-hmm. Like when he throws a punch, he looks awkward. He looks like I would look throwing a punch. And that's, that's what he should look like because he's, he's not a fighter, but he's fighting with everything. He's hitting him with a chair. You know, yeah. he, he's, he's not holding back anything. But he's yeah. also clumsy, and I, I like, like I said, I just thought when they got to that scene, it, it first occurred to me. I was like, "Oh, no, that doesn't look right," and then the more I thought about it, I was like, "No, it looks so right."
1: Hmm. That's a, that's such a good observation. I don't know that I've really even thought about that. I love that <laughs> scene that comes before it, though, when uh, Kimball confronts him during that speech. And there's so just they could give you pervasic. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Exactly. He's like, Richard, I'm in the middle of a speech. Um, and I love uh, I love the 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 crowd. I mean, you think about it. Sometimes you watch extras and they're just sort of like hubbub, hubbub 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 you know, but like, I feel like the crowd does a really good job of being like, dude, that's that guy from TV. Like, holy crap. You know, like, he's this figure like, you know, from the news and like this is a really really wild moment that they're experiencing in real time and it's it's such i I feel like the 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 awkwardness and the anger coming from you know ford's character and almost the backed into the corner you know aspect of Nichols here and you know my friend here is not well (laughs) it's it's it's
3: an (laughs) amazing it's it's like let me me grab anything to tell this audience right now because because i have no idea how i'm getting out of this
1: and then he puts his hands in his pockets and kind of does that Clooney head bob. Is like <laughs> as you know he's getting called out, and then eventually he puts his hands on him. Ah, oh, so good.
3: Now, one of the things they did was they avoided the uh, just the the moment that you see in every movie where he, you know, he where, where Richard Kimball confides him in, in him and he says, "Did you tell anybody else about this? No, just mm. you. All right, don't say anything to anybody, and I'll take care of it. We yes. don't have that, thankfully." Yeah. And you know it, it does until the mystery totally presents itself, or until the actual solution to the mystery presents itself to, Har- to Richard Kimball, We don't have any reason to suspect him. Mm-hmm. And I think yeah, that's good. Yeah, because he tries to help him earlier. Yeah, you know, he's smarter than me and all of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I, I don't, I, I don't think this movie would be improved. In fact, I think it might be lesser if they had given us clues early on that he was the cause of all of this.
1: Right. You're making me really appreciate all the spinning plates that this movie has. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, Zach, you were just saying the fact that you have to have a crime occur where it, you, the world could be convinced that this man is guilty, and we know he isn't, right? right? So that's one thing that's tricky enough without asking us to, like, go through hoops, right? And then you have to have this, like, dogged pursuit that's interesting, and then you have to have this mystery that's unfolding and solvable and solved by the end. It feels satisfying and logical, but you know, that's just, that's a, that's a tall order.
3: Mm-hmm. There's, there's so many reasons. And I think, you know, we talked about it when we started recording this. There's so many reasons why this movie shouldn't have worked.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And they all do. And all those plates keep spinning. And that's why, you know, Zachy and I still get so energized about it to this day. <laughs>
3: yeah. And I watched it recently for the sake of talking to you guys and just talking about it makes me want to put it on again,
1: yeah, actually I same i I know it so well that I was felt comfortable enough just coming on here and talking about it, but it's been a while since I've watched it and i it's kind of making me want to go revisit it
3: <laughs> I'm trying to figure out how I can uh wrangle my kids into sitting down and watching it.
1: I'd be curious, yeah, I'd be curious if they they get into it
3: if I get them at the right moment, they will they're they're pretty open minded about watching cer- you know if I tell them something's really good, they'll give it a shot. It's yeah. a matter of finding both of them with free time at the same time to to get this done. But uh, if that if that happens, I will uh, I will update you on that.
1: What uh, what what is Harrison Ford in their eyes? Because I mean, again, Harrison Ford was a humongous star, right? In the of course the eighties and the nineties and whatever. And so you know, to me, he's always going to be Harrison Ford superstar. And now I you know he's in you know you've got like sort of the firewalls and sort of those misfires. So to speak, that he had for a little while, where he just wasn't catching like he used to, and now he's kind of the the old man in Call of the Wild and whatnot. I mean, do, does he, he, he is he a superstar to in your Call kids?
3: By the way, by the way, I, uh, I love Call of the Wild. I know it's so, kind of
1: corny and whatnot, but I, I I got wrapped right up in that.
3: Yeah, no, I think it's the best. Probably because Given in quite a while. Yeah, uh, Mike. My, to my kids, Harrison Ford is Indiana Jones. Yeah, I, don't, I mean, Harrison is he is he
1: old man Harrison Ford?
3: Right. Yeah, I, I think so because when we saw the Force Awakens, you know, they they were, you know, my my daughter cried when when mm. he died in in spoilers. Wow. Uh, but uh but you know, he was he's he's kind of old man Harrison Ford at this point. Uh but that I think Call of the Wild proved that old man Harrison Ford still has some mileage.
1: Absolutely. I mean, he's got you know, oodles of charisma and whatever it is he's got, he's got it. So uh,
2: I just one? I just want to give props to Brian for using the word oodles. That's all.
4: <laughs> <laughs> oodles. <laughs> yeah. And, wait, wait, and now a word?
1: word from Brian's grandma. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. I try to yeah I try to keep a couple of those you know in keep, my keep uh, it,
2: keep feeding it oxygen you know every couple yeah of let's just see let's
1: just see if it <laughs> takes root anywhere you know. People will be like, "Yeah, man, did you hear the new?" uh <laughs> I can't even name a new musician. I was gonna say it was Didn't the new Chance
2: the Rapper album. Yeah,
1: yeah. <laughs> I was actually about to say like Dia Lupa do a duo. Oh Lord.
2: Anyway. Oh, oh, <laughs> so, oh Uncle Brian.
3: <laughs> anyway, another another casting choice. I'm just curious because. Somebody who I wasn't particularly familiar with, but uh, is very important to the film is Andreas uh, Katsulas. Mm. I, I just knew him as Tomalak from Star Trek: The Next Generation. That's the only oh, sure. familiarity I had with him. Uh, but I thought he another one. I just thought he he brought it up to another level in this movie, uh, particularly with the yeah sure I got I got a, a you know prosthetic hand. I must have killed his wife. Yep. Like that, that yep. scene I just think he, he you know he hit it at a ballpark with that
1: yep yep yeah very very memorable
3: and he uh he apparently left us very young oh really yeah, he, he passed yeah. away at 59 years old oh wow so yeah, that he was, was in, uh, I'm sorry he,
2: it was it was in the uh, 2000s, I believe, that he passed away, right?
3: It says he died in 2006 at 59 years old, like which would have made him yeah. in his early to mid 40s when this was made. Oh wow! Yeah. There you huh. go. <laughs>
4: huh?
3: So he does strike he does strike me as a little older than that in the movie, though, and I, I and I think it's the hair. Mm. Uh, you know, he he struck me as being in his 50s then. Sure. Which was fine, you know. He's a retired cop who's doing, mm-hmm. you know, security and taking a little money on the side for killing people's wives. Uh, right. <laughs> but you know that, that that seemed like about the right age anyway. Right. Uh, anybody else whose performance or casting particularly struck you guys?
1: Well, going back to that interrogation scene, Zach and I bring these guys up a lot. Those two cops—they are the most Chicagoy cops that ever Chicago copped.
3: Now one one of them one of them actually is a retired cop.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. The I one who mean, speaks I just...
3: less, I think.
1: Oh, okay, yeah, yeah. I mean, the dude, guy with just... the glasses. Right. Yeah. Is yeah. he the one? No, he's not the one who says with the gimmick, is he? Yeah, that guy. Yeah.
2: Okay. Yeah, yeah, gonna, yeah. yeah, gonna, yeah. Just the gimmick over there, over by there.
1: Yeah. <laughs> or just walk you through the door over there and uh, just ask you a couple <laughs> yeah, questions. Yeah,
2: I, I, I I've mentioned this before, but. Both of those guys I saw on two separate episodes of ER, like in the past couple of weeks, and I'm like, right. well, yeah, in Chicago makes sense,
3: right? Actually, yep. it does, and and I I like the way the we, you know there's the two guys and I don't know how to distinguish them. There's the one guy who doesn't have the glasses with the whiter hair. Uh, Is that
1: Ron Dean? Is that the actor? Ron Dean, yeah,
3: uh, yeah. Okay, yeah. He to me presents a contrast to to D- Deputy Gerard. Mm. because he is totally willing to not even consider evidence mm-hmm. he was convicted in a court of law he's guilty that's all there is to it you know he do, he doesn't think twice twice about it whereas Gerard is taking in the evidence as it's going along to the point where by the end you know he knows his duty is to bring Kimball in mm-hmm. but by the end he he knows that Kimball's innocent and he's fine with that
4: mm-hmm.
3: uh, you know i i think uh, well Ron Dean who plays detective Kelly uh, from the personality that we see with him, I think he's actually probably upset that it turns out he's not guilty.
1: Yeah, right. I love the whole—he uh, he did it for the money. It's like he's a doctor; he's already rich. She was more rich.
2: <laughs> she was <Yeah>. more rich. <laughs>
1: yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. I
2: think I think this is part of the genius of, unlike the television series where Gerard is chasing Kimball around the country because he's the guy; it was his case. He investigated it. He arrested Kimball. This is his case. So it's a matter of pride for him. Whereas in the film, Gerard comes in after the fact. And he's not a cop in the, mm. in the sense of being part of the Chicago PD. He's a U.S. Marshal. And the in Brian, you and I talked about this on our commentary track. I think the film draws a distinction between the law and justice.
4: Mm, and mm.
2: Sam Gerard represents justice. Mm-hmm.
4: You know, yeah, or, I, I agree not, with that.
3: Yeah, and Detective Kelly effectively takes on the role of Gerard from the TV series, or at least the ideology of Gerard the ideology, from the TV yeah. series. That yeah. I arrested him because he committed this murder. He was convicted in court. He's guilty of it. That's right. Until the last episode, when you know, he, <laughs> when they catch the hooded man. Exactly.
1: <laughs> yeah, and Gerard. Still gets his man. He still gets in the car with him in the back seat. Only when he's given him an ice pack, right? Exactly. So he still gets the satisfaction. You see the lightness, you know, of, of completing his task. But uh, he's got it all figured out. And is that like, I could use the rest. <laughs> <laughs>
3: uh, I don't, I don't want to jump too much into it, but I think they really missed an opportunity on uh, U.S. Marshals. And I yeah. think the problem yeah. was they tried to do the Fugitive Light. Mm. Yeah. And I, I think they could have, you know, th- there are other places you could have gone with this. And, and you had such a rich character there. And he's still appealing in U.S. Marshals, but there's something missing. And it's not just Harrison Ford. It's, it's the mission needed to be different.
1: Yeah, I don't recall it to be honest very well. I, I saw it when it came out and I I don't think I've gone back. So I don't remember really. I couldn't speak to it I don't know, do if like what I remember I caught like the first ten minutes maybe on cable and I remember it starts with uh Gerard in a chicken suit.
3: I don't right. even remember that. <laughs>
1: you know, like like one of those people that stand outside of a restaurant with like a flyer and but it's kind of played for laughs. Like the tone just feels different. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know I don't know Zach you, I'm curious your thoughts on it because I, I don't re- remember it very well
2: um, I, I've just recently rewatched it I think, I think the biggest problem is that they they looked at the fugitive and they were like alright we gotta have that scene in this mm. we gotta do our version of that so like we did the train crash in there let's right. do the plane crash here we did the jump from the waterfall here Let's do a jump from the building here, you know? Mm. And it's a lot of that. And I think fundamentally, they, you know, they wanted, they, they look at the fugitive and they're like, all right, uh, the hook here is that it's an innocent man and, uh, uh he's trying to prove his innocence and we got Sam Gerard. So we got to do that again. Mm-hmm. But, uh, the problem is, uh, I'm in a man who. A regular guy who's on the run uh, because he's accused of murdering his wife. That's something you can get your arms around versus an ex special forces guy who's accused of murdering a guy who was trading, uh, you know, state secrets. And and that's Mm. like I'm I I got bored halfway through that sentence.
4: Right, right, right.
2: (laughs) Right. And and it's, it's, it's a shame because I think. I think Timely Jones is very good in it. I think I think all the U.S. Marshals you're like happy to see him back. Dan Robuck, mm-hmm. um, you know uh, Tom Tom Wood who plays Newman, but it's just it's it's such a it's such a they should call it 1998 movie, you know, because <laughs> it, it, it is like it's made to exist in March of 1998. <laughs> and, and not one day past March, you
3: know, <laughs> where, where this one, you know, I mean, this had some serious stuff going on. And I mean, you got a guy's wife is murdered and he's on the run. for, You know, I mean, the the the, the overall plot is very serious, but there's moments in this movie that make you genuinely grin and smile. Uh, and not because of comic relief, but just because of the character moments and what's going on. And I only saw U.S. Marshals once, but it seemed to be missing that feel. Mm. Yeah. It, it, yeah. I, I hate to overuse this word, but it almost felt a little soulless compared to this one.
2: No, that's accurate. I, and I gotta say, it is directed by Stuart Baird, who has never impressed me as a director. I think he's a very good editor. He edited Superman the Movie, for goodness' sake. Um, I think I think soulless is the word to describe his directorial efforts because he did Executive Decision, which also has Andres Cazales, by the way. Uh, he did us marshals and he did star Trek nemesis mm. and he has, you know, he has no directorial signature. There's nothing that really, I mean, he's, he is the definition of plug and play. Mm. And, and, you know, I mean, say what you will. I think, I think Andrew Davis brought so much, uh, to the fugitive, you know, and part of it is because he grew up in Chicago. It's reflective of his own experience with that city. Um, I don't know why they wouldn't have brought him back. You know, I, th- I think that was a big mistake.
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I wonder what if he they was if doing they would have at that time maybe he was involved in something else. Like,
2: possibly, but I mean, if they, you know, they 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 waited what? They spent like five years essentially between between the fugitive and U.S. Martins. If mm-hmm. they would have done it right, they could have done like six of those movies. You know.
3: Okay, well, in 1998, Andrew Davis had uh, a perfect murder with uh, Michael Douglas and Gwyneth mm. Paltrow.
2: Which is very uh, good.
3: It, it, was, it, was, it, it wasn't The Fugitive. Uh, no. But it had its moments. I don't think he's
2: ever matched that. I don't think he's ever matched what he accomplished with The Fugitive. Mm-hmm.
3: I'm,
2: I mean, I'm, I'm struggling to think of I mean, he did Chain Reaction right after, and that was not good at all.
3: Is that with um, Keanu
2: Reeves? Was, with Keanu Reeves and Morgan yeah. Freeman, yeah. Fred Ward. I mean, that was another plug and play. Let's have Fred Ward is going to be the Tommy Lee Jones and Keanu mm. is going to be the Richard Kimmel. But it's, and Rachel Weisz, I think, is in there, if I'm not
1: mistaken. Hmm. It'd almost be interesting if then they gave the same Gerard character a case where the guy is guilty.
2: That's what I'm saying, right? You mix it up,
1: you know? Yeah. You let's, know, and so it's put- like you got to get this guy before he hurts someone else you know it's like different that, stakes
2: it's so yeah. it's so odd to me because because that's exactly what you do you've already established the character we already like him all right now let's just drop him into something different because we don't need to replay the same beats because we already I mean, like maybe you character.
3: totally turn it on its ear and you you have somebody who other people are convinced somehow uh, people in some sort of level of authority are convinced did not do it mm-hmm. and gerard is once again kind of being non-committal the i don't care and he finds out that the guy did. <laughs> right. I don't, I don't know. Like there's, Something. There's, yeah, something to twist it a little.
1: Mm-hmm. hmm th- Just I different think... different sorts of stakes.
3: Yeah. Yeah. Or, you know, like you said, somebody who it's like, I got to get this guy off the street before you hurt somebody. That's the stakes. Mm-hmm. You know, that would have been better.
1: Yeah.
4: Well, So that's, it that's a, It's a Let's lost it. opportunity. <laughs> 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 it's a
3: lost opportunity is what it is. Yeah. Uh anything else about this one that you think is worth touching on before we wrap it up?
1: I, I don't know how, but this just became one of those movies that uh, really, really, you know, stuck with me all these years. And even, I mean, the story and the set pieces, the set pieces are, I, I I don't want to call them like lo-fi. That's so weird to say, but like they really, it's like a foot chase, right? And it's, two people in a building and they're going to pass on the stairs and it's like nail biting. And there's something sort of refreshing about that type of action that still plays to this day. So um, I still get energized by this movie and I still funny enough, because I don't think a lot of people do, but Zachy and I quote it to one another all the time (laughs) over text. (laughs) Just the most (laughs) random things from it. But um, I don't know. There's just so much I love about this movie and I'm excited for anyone who hasn't seen it Who's listening to this to check it out? Um, I really think they're gonna enjoy it. I think it holds up
3: absolutely. Oh, I don't think it's aged badly at all. Yeah, you know, I don't think there's any point in it where you say, oh, that, you know, look at that special effect or mm-hmm. that line of dialogue is too dated. I don't, I don't think there's any of that.
1: Yeah, and I mean, it's going back to that train scene you thought I was originally talking about. You know, there's something kind of, you know, things are starting to to come to a head, and then you have our hero on a train and you see a guy reading a paper and lower it and like wait a minute and lower the paper again and you're like oh no like it's a whole different style of tension you know it's mm-hmm. not things crashing into this or that but it's it's tension nonetheless and i think it's still palpable
3: through, through the <laughs> whole movie you're in richard kimball's shoes mm-hmm. except you're just not quite as Competent as he is, mm-hmm. we're, not, we're, we're not capable of doing a search to find out who, who, you know, who has prosthetic arms that fit the uh, the description, or to know, you know, to go to the hospital and to be to be able to solve this mystery. But you're constantly in his shoes anyway. Right. And in that scene, it, you're definitely sitting there looking at this guy saying, "Oh, please don't recognize me. Please don't recognize me." Yeah,
1: mm, yeah. Yeah, and then when he slowly it pulls is. his paper and stands up, you're like, "Ah." Oh. <laughs>
2: It's it's a uh, it's a perfect what would you do movie,
4: mm-hmm.
2: um, and there is an element of and this is going to sound weird, but there's an element of of wish fulfillment to where I think many of us think about what would it be like if I was just on you know on my own and i had to just kind of make things you know make things work obviously we don't want to be on the run for that reason that's awful but like that that sense of like just leaving everything behind and just you know i mean that was the reason the series worked Mm -hmm. Uh, because you think like i i hope i would be this person even under these circumstances right richard kimball is a good person
1: yeah he's a capable person and he's not a superhero he's just capable Right. Yeah. And so it's you know. it feels within a reality that, you know, you would like to think that you could be as quick on your feet and resourceful. And,
2: and Brian, well, I mean, I think I think that's the reason. I'm sorry, Paul, I didn't mean to cut you. That's all right. Go ahead. Uh, I, I, I think that's the reason they keep going back to this premise. I mean, you, you know, you've got the original show, you got this film. But I mean, you know, they did a, t- a new television series uh, a few years after this movie. Mm. With uh, Tim wanna, Daly,
4: right?
2: With, with Tim Daly, and I'm like the one guy who absolutely adored that show. Mm. Um, I, I wish they'd released it on DVD or something. Um, and then, you know, they're working on supposedly a new. There's like that. That was like a version of it on Quibi, I think, which like that'll be gone in moments. But, oh, yeah.
4: Um, was, was that with that?
2: Kiefer Sutherland? With Kiefer Sutherland. That's not yeah. Richard Kimber or whatever. But they're talking about doing like another movie also. Right. And, and who knows if it'll be good or not. But I mean,. The point is, there's a lot of juice in the premise mm-hmm. that pulls people back in. Right? The idea of the the good, innocent man, the good man who is innocent. He's not merely innocent, he's also good, mm-hmm. who is uh, a victim of the system. I th- I think that's something that is just fundamentally relatable, going all the way back to Jean Valjean. Right.
4: Mm-hmm.
2: You know, and before, you know.
3: One one of the things I just wanted to mention about that whole situation, though, you know, talking about him and his competency. uh, I'm not a big fan of the term uh, Mary Sue, Mm -hmm. uh, but there's never a point where his level of competency feels like it fits that definition. Mm -hmm. Everything the way this movie was put together. And again, it's it's just a miracle because it sounds like they threw it together with, you know, spit and tape. Uh, but but the way it's put together, every scene that he shows that level of competency, it totally makes sense. Right. And that's that's just you know, that it, it, I guess it's a lucky accident in a lot of the a lot of respects. Yeah. But it it really is you know it's what's the old expression if you had like an infinite number of monkeys on an infinite number of typewriters, <laughs> <laughs> I, I, like Shakespeare I think, or whatever. It was yeah.
2: the best of times. It was the bluest of times. times. <laughs>
3: that's that's almost what it feels like like this is just that one that you know despite all the reasons why this should have failed everything about it works there is there isn't one thing about this movie that i think i you know that i look at and say okay this they could have done better Mm -hmm. Uh, and for that for that reason on my scale i rank it as a jaws and
2: I'm, I'm, i'm with you
1: i agree
3: so I think I'm gonna let you boys off the hook now, after I've <laughs> taken away two of your nights. No, uh, I, I always love chatting with you. This is a lot of fun. But I I, I enjoy this a lot, and I, I look forward to hopefully getting together again, and uh, you know, just picking another one to to tear apart and prop up.
1: Absolutely, and I got I got to <laughs> credit Zachy. This is the perfect one to to come on here and get excited about and and gush over. So good good choice.
3: Thanks, man. You guys, before we call it a night, you want to uh, pimp your shows? Sure. Oh, your Jackie, show, Brian, and your shows,
1: Zachy. <laughs> yeah. Zachy's got this down. I, I've never actually had to do the outro to our show, and I don't even know if I can do it. You do it so Brian
2: well. actually doesn't know even the name of our podcast. He just That's true. Shows up. Yeah.
1: <laughs> uh, I have it written <laughs> on the inside of my shirt, and I... Uh... <laughs>
2: Um, Well, yeah, thank you. Thank you again, uh, Paul, for having us on. And uh, yeah, if you you, uh, have not heard Brian and I before, we normally talk every other week or so on the movie film podcast, uh, where we talk about the latest releases and headlines. And then we also do commentary tracks for that show, including coming up, we have a commentary track for RoboCop 2. And hey, Brian, while I got you, uh, when's a good time to record that?
1: I was actually like right now thinking like I'm going to get a text as soon as we hop off this call.
2: (laughs) (laughs) So we got to we got to figure out when we're going to do that. But uh, that's a comment. And then, uh, you know, we got uh, all kinds of other stuff there. You can find uh, the show at iTunes. And if you like it there, please leave a review. Leave a star rating and you can reach out to me on Twitter at Jackie's Corner. That's the A-K-I-S Corner. And Brian is doing whatever the hell he's doing. (laughs)
1: <laughs> yeah uh movie film <laughs> podcast obviously and then i also write for a, a disney show called puppy dog pals so if you have young ones or if you're young at heart love puppies uh that airs on disney disney jr and disney plus so still still going strong that show
3: and you should be better at pimping yourselves that i shouldn't have to say you could also find Zachy on nostalgia theater yeah <laughs> <laughs> oh, yes another podcast that both of them are, are must listen as far as I'm concerned. And if you don't oh, subscribe you. to them, I, I can't. Well, the only thing I don't want you to do is to stop listening to this in order to listen to that. No, they all Not compliment it. one another. Yeah, I, I think <laughs> they do. And I, 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 like I said, I look forward to having you guys on again. I want to thank you for taking the time to do this and thank you everybody who's listening and we'll see you in, or we'll, we won't see you, but you'll hear us in two weeks. Bye-bye. A new drug on the cusp of approval by the Food
5: and Drug Administration is poised to change these old methods
0: forever. Rob, Deputy Newman, U.S. Marshal Service. How you doing? Good. Sam, I'm in.
5: Oh. Through the normal metabolic pathways in delivery. And the drug's name is Provasic. As I will show you tonight, Provasic is remarkably effective and has no side effects whatsoever. It is also noteworthy that this drug that this drug was developed in cooperation, not competition, with the Chicago Memorial Hospital, in what we hope will be the model for continued dishonest excuse, honest. Open joint ventures between academic medicine and pharmaceutical industry, Richard. (laughs) I'm sorry, I'm in the middle of this speech. You almost got away with it, didn't you?
0: I know all about it. I can
5: prove it. Ladies and gentlemen, my friend Richard Kimball doesn't feel well, obviously, so... If you just go on with your dessert and coffee, uh, Richard, do you mind to step aside and let's talk? Okay. So, uh, I'll be back in just a second.
0: You changed the samples, didn't you, huh? You switched the samples after Lens died. let... us stay... stay calm, people. After Lenz died, you were the only one who had the access. You switched the samples and the pathology reports. Did you killed Lenz too. Huh? Can we get some security huh? in here, please. Did you? He falsified his research so that our DU90 could be approved and Devlin McGregor could give you Provasic.
5: All right, it's all over, folks. Let's just uh, stay calm.